and welcome to Unorthodoxy. My name is Duncan and this is part two in our four-part series exploring some thinking around Jung's personality typology theory, which was popularized, whether we like it or not, by the somewhat controversial Myers-Briggs team in the form of the MBTI, which is what most of you are probably familiar with. As I mentioned in my previous episode, the Myers-Briggs thing has received some critique, often with good reason. And to this I would simply say that figuring out how the Jungian model can be genuinely useful to us means taking seriously what it can do and what it can't and shouldn't do, what it's about and what it's not about. I guess this applies to most things. We need to use them in accordance with what they are rather than in accordance with what they are not. So, for instance, when someone discovers that they are an INTJ or INTP, you cannot and should not immediately assume that they are super smart because Jung's model is about cognitive processes, not strictly speaking about intelligence. Jung's typology tells us very little, maybe even nothing, about character or belief or motivation. It's about the structure of consciousness, not about the content of consciousness. And this is really important. The way I see it, you can only aim to grow as a person when using the MBTI or Jungian typology to the extent that you allow yourself the space to work on core character issues. It does not help for example, to become a more extroverted person if you're an introvert when you are a lousy human being as an introvert. I'd say that being a better human being, that is leaving every place in better shape than you found it, should still take priority than just becoming better at observing and considering the world. Maybe becoming more extroverted will make sense, to use my earlier example, if part of becoming more extroverted involves, for instance, being less self-absorbed or selfish in your introversion. Which brings me to the cognitive functions. In Jung's estimation, cognitive functions are about preferred styles of operating in the world and thinking about operating in the world, especially with regard to learning and deciding. That is pretty much what Jung's typology focuses on. The mind is busy with all kinds of things, including various autonomic processes and emotional configurations, and Jung knew this, but his model really focuses on three main things. First, how we orientate ourselves towards or away from the world, that's introversion or extroversion, which we've covered in the previous episode. Then second, Jung's typology deals with how we acquire data, that's learning or perceiving, which we'll deal with in this episode, and third, it deals with how we process that data. That's deciding or judging, which we'll cover in the third episode. As soon as it is claimed that Jung's typology does more than deal with these three things, we start to have some trouble. These three things, that is attitude, learning, and deciding, are in constant interactive mode. They are filtering and flowing in and out of each other to form part of the consciousness that we know as personality. Notice I really do mean part of personality. Knowing which cognitive functions a person uses does not amount to knowing that person at all. Just as knowing a person's type doesn't mean understanding a person fully. Jung's model is a kind of wireframe model or container that tells us more or less how people will gather, organize and process certain contents of personality. 
But it's also clear that knowing Jung's typology gives us phenomenal insights into the natural biases of people. Certain forms of information, for instance, will be more easily accepted by some people than by others. Certain ways of thinking are definitely more evident in some people than they are in others. And this is why Nietzsche's insight that all philosophy is really unconscious autobiography is so interesting. When you read the work of any person or listen to a podcast, for instance, you can very quickly get a sense of how personality itself informs content and communication, although it does not dictate it. It will give you a sense of where people's strong and weak points are too, and it may help you to better consider how to relate to them in terms of those things. And just a very brief note in terms of relating to people. When people start to look at Jungian typology in terms of which romantic uh, partnerships or friendships will work, um, they are barking up the wrong tree. In this episode, I just want to begin to unpack the so-called cognitive functions, but only on the learning side. In other words, I'll deal with the so-called irrational cognitive functions, which basically deal with how we like our data served uh, when we're gathering data and sorted when we're organizing data. The word irrational here means that, yes, our learning, which involves taking in and organizing data, is not first and foremost an issue of reasoning. It's only in thinking through the data and making sense of it that rationality starts to come into play. Data gathering and sorting are two dimensions of our learning and perceiving, with gathering being assigned to the extroverted learning functions, and with sorting being assigned to the introverted learning functions. But before I get to the details on these cognitive functions, a Jungian principle is important. Remember, Jung worked with many, many people as an analyst, and he started to notice that our psyches function on the basis of pairs of opposites. He started then to employ a principle from the philosopher Heraclitus known as enantiodromia, which is the idea, very basically, that things rely on their opposites. You don't get to have any introverted function like a sorting function apart from its reliance on some extroverted function, like a gathering function. It's good to keep this idea in mind because it'll help us not to forget that certain ways of functioning are highly dependent on other ways of functioning. So, with that in mind, what are the cognitive functions? Well, the name is, thankfully, pretty descriptive. They are functions of cognition, functions of thought. In other words, they are mental processes through which we navigate life, the universe, and everything from our own perspective. There are processes of thought that each of us find easier than other processes of thought, and we come to prefer those processes of thought over others. Cognitive functions pertain to how we deal with and relate to the stuff that's going on in our heads. The learning functions that we're focusing on in this episode have to do with how we perceive psychic material, and the deciding functions that we'll cover in the next episode have to do with how we evaluate psychic material. There are four learning functions, but these can be divided into two categories, and the categories are intuition and sensation, symbolized by N for intuition and S for sensation on the MBTI code. Why N for intuition? Well, because the I was already taken by the term introversion. 
The basic idea behind the division between S and N is the issue of the literal, that's S, versus the implied, that's N. You could think of S as specific and N as more general. Intuition and sensing, though, are interdependent, but you will always lean more heavily on one than on the other. But precisely how this looks or works depends very much on the attitude of your specific learning functions. I will get to the attitudes of each function. Remember, those are extroverted or introverted, E or I, as we get along. But I'm going to start with a general definition of each first. Let's start by looking at intuition in general first. That will be symbolized by the letter N. Both NI, that's introverted intuition, and NE, that's extroverted intuition, meaning I'm talking about all intuition, deals with connections, associations, patterns, and possibilities. Remember, this is the implied meaning. Intuition is inventive and predictive. It looks ahead of itself all the time and tries to figure out not just what is, but also, more importantly for it, what could be. It looks for connections and a synthesis between multiple contradictory ideas. And intuition really struggles to live in the present. So keep that in mind, and as we look at the two intuitive cognitive functions in terms of their different orientations, extroverted intuition, NE, and introverted intuition, that's NI. We'll look at them one at a time, starting with extroverted intuition, which is the dominant function of ENTPs and ENFPs, and it is the auxiliary function of INFPs and INTPs. NE looks for external connections, associations, patterns, and possibilities. And you could give this function the nickname exploration. For NE dominant types, the world is one big theme park and all the rides need to be tried out and then reinvented probably. Or maybe the world is a jungle and every inch of it needs to be discovered and explored. NE is a gathering function, but it does tend to also complicate and explode what it is gathering for the introverted sensing that it is dependent on. More on that in a bit. NE tends to have very wide interests and a very general or broad understanding of a wide range of subjects. Its issue is breadth more than depth and it's highly inclusive as a function meaning that it, it always wants to take in more or, or find out more. When you think of the stereotypical idea of brainstorming or just seeing where our ideas take us, you are thinking of most probably extroverted intuition. For NE, ideas are played with externally, especially in speech, but often in experimenting with different real-world things too. Remember that NE, being extroverted, sees the world as real, although the focus is going to tend to be not on present realities only, but also on creating novel experiences and possible realities out of present realities. It's an incredibly creative function. It does also mean that NE gets bored quite quickly and will even try to create chaos just to keep things interesting. That's one of the downsides. NE likes to wing it and it likes to see what happens next. If you want to hear an NE user speak, because there's a specific speech pattern, the ENTP philosopher Slavoj Žižek is a really good example of a, an, a dominant NE user. He starts at one point and then his ideas explode outwards, endlessly multiplying and reproducing idea upon idea and layer upon layer. 
and hardly ever landing, which can make for some frustrating listening. And since he writes like he talks, reading him can be fun, but also frustrating if you really want him to make a single point. Uh, He's not going to make one point. He will make many points along the way and not necessarily conclude all of those points for you. Socrates, at least as we find him in some of Plato's writings, it's difficult because Plato wrote about Socrates both as a person and as a fuel sort of construct for his own philosophy, but in a lot of Plato's writings, he comes across as being a lot like an ENTP. He was very happy to explore ideas in a fairly impersonal way, but he was also quite comfortable with not letting the ideas land. The theologian Robert Farrar Capon was an ENTP, as was the philosopher David Hume. Jacques Derrida was an NE dominant user too, but probably an ENFP. And I think the Apostle Peter in the Bible was an ENFP. You see some of that spontaneous energy happening, and there's often a little bit, um, especially in ENFPs, a little bit of um, fear and anxiety because the possible futures that are imagined often are not necessarily all that pleasant. So that is NE, extroverted intuition, which means we can look at the other intuitive function, which has the opposite attitude of NE, that is introverted intuition, which has the shorthand NI. We can call this function maps or perspectives. This is the dominant function of INFJs and INTJs, and it is the auxiliary function of ENFJs and ENTJs. NI looks for internal connections, associations, patterns, and possibilities. It focuses on the core essence of ideas and systems of thought, and it generates insights, lots of aha moments that that spring out out of nowhere, or apparently. NI users will often find themselves caught unawares by an epiphany and will need to then put that epiphany somewhere. Uh, The typical theorist or philosopher or dreamer will work very much with this function. NI likes riddles, intellectual puzzles and systems and wordplay. NE does like quite a lot of wordplay too. Um, And NI will tend to desire a very deep understanding of a narrow range of subjects. And yet, like NE types, NI types look for novel ideas, but only when they're in a comfortable space. Although these ideas are played with internally, often between the conscious and unconscious aspects of the psyche. However, unlike NE, NI wants patterns to feel complete and it really cannot handle brainstorming when there isn't enough data to work with, which is something that NE types don't mind at all. Unlike the rapid-fire, spontaneous energy of NE, NI is painfully, painfully slow. Um, but when the epiphany does strike, the agony does feel worth it. While NE is very inclusive, NI tends to be more exclusive and excluding because its focus is on contents already present in the subject's own consciousness. It'll quickly push away what doesn't seem relevant to it. There are quite a few dominant NI users in the world of philosophy, I guess you would expect this. In the INTJ camp, we have philosophers Hegel, Nietzsche, and Marx. And Christian apologist and fantasy mythology writer C.S. Lewis is also an INTJ. And in the INFJ camp, we have Wittgenstein, Carl Jung, Schopenhauer, and Plato. 
Schopenhauer is no doubt one of the most miserable INFJs to have ever lived. It seems to me that the writer of the book of John in the Bible was an INFJ. And it's very likely that Jesus in the New Testament was NI dominant. Although I am rather skeptical of the usual designation that he was an INFJ. It seems much more likely to me that the Jesus of the New Testament was an INTJ. But I guess that's something that we could uh, debate endlessly. Um, and I'm not going to debate it now. So the, those are the intuitive functions that I've just covered, which brings us to the other learning functions, sensation or sensing. Again, let's look at this category more generally before diving into the details of the two types of sensing based on the two orientations. Sensation, S, focuses on concrete sensation and facts, present and past. Sensing is dependent on the world for reliable information, not generally speaking on wild speculations. It will very seldom be willing to sacrifice the stable present for the sake of some unstable future. Sensing trusts incremental, careful shifts from one thing to another and from one idea to another. This is very different from intuition, which will tend not to mind making fairly large mental leaps. As with all cognitive functions, sensation divides into the two attitudes or orientations, extroverted sensation, the SE, and introverted sensation, SI. Let's begin with the gathering function, SE, which we could give the nickname experience. SE is about the direct physical awareness of the real object, what it's like, how it feels, how it will behave when manipulated. It lives in the present. It's the now, 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 now function, if you like. And it seeks out experience in a very embodied way. Dominant SE types are very concerned with the present. Direct contact with the objective external world. And often this is in terms of the, the category of enjoyment. This is dominant in ESFPs and ESTPs. And the auxiliary function of ISFPs and ISTPs. So that's SE extroverted sensing. So now we can look at introverted sensing, SI. We could give this function the name memory. Um, and SE is much more sort of present orientated. SI is much more concerned with the past working its way towards the present. So the present is always contextualized in terms of the past for SI. SI is an organizing function like NI, but it's much more incremental than uh, and I would say in some sense more stable than NI. When I think of SI, I think of a librarian working through every book in the Dewey Decimal System, making sure that everything is in its right place. Because SI is introverted, we know that we're dealing with subjective stored facts and physical sensations or stored impressions of reliable, agreeable information. SI compares any given present experience with any historical impression. And so it often has a knowledge framework that you might call trivia. It is very minimalist and somewhat resistant to new information. Um, NI incidentally is resistant to new information, but SI is way more resistant to new information if you want to put it like that. People who lead with SI are usually very organized and structured and they believe wholeheartedly in being prepared. They have a high regard for tradition and they trust what has been tried and true. 
so making changes is not their strong suit. Famous SI dominant thinkers include the ISTJs, Marcus Aurelius, Sigmund Freud, Martin Heidegger, and Thomas Hobbes. It's very likely that the writer of the book of Luke in the New Testament and the book of Acts in the New Testament, same guy, he was probably an ISTJ. Also on the theological front, Pope Benedict XVI, probably also an ISTJ. And then other SI dominants, more humanitarian in their orientation, are Mother Teresa, Mahatma Gandhi, and Pope Francis. And I'm also pretty certain that Thomas Akempis, who wrote the book The Imitation of Christ, was an ISFJ. So there you go. That covers the four learning functions NE, NI, SE, and SI. And if this makes sense to you, I'm very grateful. <laughs> that's that's to, to begin with. But I can also now say a little bit more about the idea of function axes. This fits with what I mentioned earlier about enantiodromia, the fact that functions are interdependent, they rely on other things. So for starters, you can always be sure that NE and SI go together. If you spot a dominant NE type, you can be sure that beneath that extroverted intuition, which is bouncing around all over the place, is a very calm, very stable-minded, introverted sensing. And if you meet a dominant SI type, you can be absolutely certain that beneath that introverted sensing is extroverted intuition. NE and SI always go together. And together they produce a multifaceted, sweeping perception that tends to undercommit and bounce around a little bit. The motion here involves taking a very stretched, fuzzy associative Im image, that would be NE, and it pulls it together into a very clear pinpointed image in the psyche. That would be SI. You can think here of, of the image of a telescope for the NESI axis. It pulls this very distant image into a very clear focus inside the mind. As this analogy tells us, SI pays attention to the focused clear internal image, whereas NE pays much more attention to the fuzzy associative image outside of it, up there in the stars, so to speak. The question that the NESI axis asks is, what is the relative truth behind each perspective? So that's the NESI function axis. Now let's look at the NISE function axis. NI and SE always go together. This asks the question, what is the most likely outcome predictable on the basis of the direct raw data? If you spot a dominant SE type, you can be sure that beneath that extroverted sensing is introverted intuition. And if you meet a dominant NI type, you can be sure that beneath that introverted intuition is extroverted sensing. Once you get the hang of the function axes, it actually becomes a lot easier to type people because it helps you to start with the question, which axis is this person using for their data gathering and organizing? A similar sort of approach works when you start to understand the judging axes, which we'll get to in the next episode. Data gathering will always be through an extroverted function, NE or SE, and data organizing will always be through the opposite introverted function, SI or NI. The SENI axis produces intense, deep perception. It tends to overanalyze and overcommit to one area. 
The motion here is from a very narrow pinpointed object outside the subject. This is SE's direct focus. And this retreats into the subject's psyche, expanding to form a very fuzzy associative image in the mind. This is the NI's tendency to abstract and map things. NI has a very, very loose scaffold kind of structure. SE is incredibly concrete, as I said, and NI will form an inward network of hundreds of other impressions and fragments. Here, instead of the telescope for the NESI axis, think of a microscope for the NISE axis, which pulls very concrete detail into a fuzzy picture into, in the mind. SE will focus more on the concrete details, whereas NI will focus on a more fuzzy picture and its various associations in the mind. I know that this is a horrible amount of information to take in, especially if you're not all that familiar with this stuff. So let me just give you a brief recap of what we've covered before we end. First, in the previous episode, we covered the two main attitudes or orientations, introversion and extroversion. I refers to the subjective. In other words, the focus is on trying to overcome objective biases to discover what my inner world tells me. And E concerns the objective, which means overcoming subjective bias in order to align with what the world tells me. Then in this episode, we looked at the four learning functions, also called perceiving functions. Two of these are sensing functions, meaning that they deal with this concrete reality in a fairly literalist manner. And the first of these sensing functions is introverted sensing, which deals with wisdom taken from this reality, bit by bit through very careful cataloging. The second of these sensing functions is extroverted sensing, which deals with the concrete awareness of this reality as taken up by the senses. Then we have the two intuitive functions, which are intuitive in the sense that they deal with possible realities. Extroverted intuition, NE, deals with awareness of possible realities in terms of what the world tells me. And introverted intuition, by contrast, this is NI, deals with wisdom taken from possible realities in terms of what the inner world tells me. Then finally, we looked at how NE and SI are always interdependent. They're always working together and how NI and SE are always interdependent. Although, as usual, one of these will be more preferred than the other, depending on each individual. And that, as they say in the classics, is that. In the next episode, we'll start to look at the last four cognitive functions. We've looked at the functions that deal with data processing, that is the gathering and organizing of data. So now we can look in the next episode and how we decide what to do with what we've learned. This means looking at the so-called deciding or judging functions. I hope that you will join me for that soon. Take care, everyone.